This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Tuesday. More genetics and dermatology questions. Daphne, are you ready? Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. When I ask Daphne if she's ready, it usually means I'm not ready. So let's go. <laughs> um, I think, okay, since we had some confusion last time, I think you ask me the first question. No, you ask me the first question. Ah, damn it. All right, fine. <laughs> question nine then. Uh, let's start off with question nine. A male infant is born at 32 weeks of gestation. He emerges vigorous with a spontaneous cry, good respiratory effort. However, he is covered in a tight yellow-brown shiny scale. His lower eyelid and both lips turn outward. The skin on his palm and sole is thickened and his nails are dysplastic. Daphna, this infant is at risk for all of the following, except choice A, cognitive delay, choice B, hyponatremia, Choice C, hypothermia. Choice D, pneumonia. Choice E, scarring and alopecia. Okay. So this this is a baby who has uh, one of those, what are they called? The collo- colloidian membranes. I was, right? I was letting you pronounce it first because I was... <laughs> Col- collodian? Collodian? Sure. Collodian, I can buy. <laughs> membranes. Um. So, um, I, I don't think it's related to cognitive delays, but I guess I'm not sure. Um, hyponatremia. So this kid, I mean, a hallmark is that they're at risk for dehydration. So if anything, I would anticipate this baby would have hypernatremia, not hyponatremia. Hypothermia is interesting because curiously, they, they probably are at risk for abnormal thermoregulation. Um, pneumonia, no, though they're at risk for other infections, scarring and, and alopecia. Um, I honestly, I'm not sure of the answer to that either, but I know that I, I, I think that the wrong answer is hyponatremia because um, they would be at risk for hypernatremia. That's correct. Um, so this is a baby with collodion membrane, as we said, and that usually means that this membrane is a thickened stratum corneum that swells from amniotic fluid exposure. And the tight membranes around the infant cause ectropion, which which leads to uh, which is basically a version of the lower eyelids, eclabion, which is a version of the lips, and leads to these like swelling of the fingers and they look like sausages. So there's such sausage-like swelling of the digits. Now, after they're born, because they're no longer exposed to um, the amniotic fluid, the membrane starts drying, it cracks, and sheds to reveal the erythematous skin underneath. Uh, and that typically happens within the first few weeks of life. Now, at that time, the baby is at significant risk for hypothermia, hypernatremic dehydration, as you've mentioned, and infection. And it, it pretty much reminds me of um, patients suffering from burns. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's very, very similar. The majority of cases are eventually diagnosed as non-bolus congenital ict- 
ectiosiform erythroderma, which is an which is autosomal recessive, though uh, some eventually have uh, normal skin. Um, those with congenital ichthyosiform erythroderma are at risk of developmental delay, scarring, and alopecia. So when you were hesitating earlier about okay. cognitive delay, I think this, this becomes a likely possibility considering that the collodion infant can eventually uh, go into this congenital ichthyosiform erythroderma. Okay. That's about 70% of them who develop that. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a more than just a majority. Um, the treatment in the first month of light in the first month of life is usually supportive. It includes lubrication of the skin, humidity, and close attention to fluid balance and serum electrolytes. So yeah, you uh, navigated that pretty well. Thanks. Um, okay, question ten. A newborn with a prenatal diagnosis of trisomy 21 is admitted to the newborn nursery. In addition to ordering an echocardiogram to screen for congenital heart disease, which of the following tests is recommended prior to the infant being discharged from the hospital? A, a CBC, B, GI contrast studies, C, thyroid function tests, D, A and C only, or E, all of the above. Okay, so... um there's three choices, basically the CBC, mm-hmm. the contrast study, or thyroid function test. So obviously, if you've taken care of a baby with trisomy 21, this should be a fairly straightforward question. Thyroid function test has to be included, so that's choice C. Um, the gastrointestinal contrast studies, it's a bit tricky, right? Because I'm assuming that um, there are uh, associations with Down syndrome, with, uh, with duodenal atresia, stuff like that. So... But it's not a recommended routine test for every baby with trisomy 21. So B is incorrect. And then A, CBC, is correct. And the reason for that is actually because okay. they could have this uh, transient myeloproliferative disorder uh, that you could diagnose on a CBC if you saw some blasts. The funny story about that is that, and this is a good lesson for everybody in, in medical education. Mm-hmm. I was on a hemonc rotation as a resident. Mm-hmm. And... And you know what? I was pretty certain that I was never going to pursue Hemonk. It's just a, 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 such a mm-hmm. sad feel. I was like, I just can't do this. And then came time for me to give a lecture. And my attending at the time said, do something on TMD, transmyeloproliferative mm-hmm. disorder. She's like, if you end up going into neonatology, as you say, you will find this helpful. <laughs> and I did it. And it's been, and I've, and I've diagnosed a kid in fellowship. And now I'm getting this question correct because of it. Um, so yes, thank you to uh, my hemonk attending at the time, which I will come up with the name <laughs> in a minute. Um, yeah, but yeah. So my ans- my answers are complete blood cell count and thyroid function, which ends up being choice D, A, and C. Um, very good. Okay, so we'll talk about uh, trisomy twenty one or uh, Down syndrome, which actually I was just printing out some material for for a, a family and. Um, Actually, the the national organization prefers the term Down syndrome, not Downs with the with an apostrophe S or just an S. So, anyways, I thought that I passed that along. Um, but trisomy twenty one occurs in approximately one per eight hundred live births. Um, it's the most common autosomal trisomy found in live newborns. 
It is associated with a 50% risk of congenital heart defects. So obviously, if it is prenatally diagnosed, then um, an echo prenatally is recommended, um, but certainly a postnatal echocardiogram is recommended regardless. And the following additional screening tests are suggested for infants with trisomy 21. The CBC, like you said, to look for early leukemoid reactions or transient myeloproliferative disorder. Um, and, um, this transient myeloproliferative disorder, um, actually is found in about 10% of infants, um, with trisomy 21. Um, it can sometimes progress into acute megakaryoblastic leukemia, um, which is a type of AML. Um, so definitely something to be looking for. Thyroid function tests um, to evaluate for hypothyroidism, which is also um, increased frequency in babies with trisomy 21, um, though it's, in, it's included in many of the newborn screens. Obviously, we would want to do a hearing screen to assess for hearing loss, but that happens in all newborns, red reflex, but specifically to assess for cataracts. Um, so something else to look at on your exams. Um, and then obviously these babies, the hallmark of trisomy 21 is hypotonia. Um, so uh, do they have poor feeding? Do they have apnea? And then, like you said, infants with trisomy 21 are at increased risk for things like duodenal atresia and also Hirschsprung's disease. So that kind of gets left out secondary to duodenal atresia. Um, but we would expect those babies to have some symptoms um, and we'd have a higher um, you know, index of suspicion for those things. But we would only get GI studies um, in the infants who have relevant symptoms. So um, CBC and thyroid function tests. Okay. Okay. The thing I was thinking of is Dr. Bertie Wistinghausen. She, uh, amazing, amazing, amazing. Very tough. So tough, but so good. All right, Daphna, trisomy 21, question 12. We're keeping, uh, we keep going. An obstetrician is counseling a non-pregnant woman about the risk of recurrence for trisomy 21. She is 30 years old and had an elective termination of pregnancy at the age of 29 after the fetus was diagnosed with trisomy 21. The obstetrician reviews the genetics of trisomy 21 with the woman. Which of the following statements is false? Okay, so we're looking for false statements. Choice A, approximately 1-2% of children with trisomy 21 have mosaic trisomy 21. Choice B, Approximately 3 to 4% of children with trisomy 21 have an unbalanced translocation, usually between chromosome 21 and 14. Most children, 95%, with trisomy 21 have non-disjunction, resulting in 47 chromosomes. Choice D, most translocations resulting in trisomy 21 are familial, and therefore both parents should be tested. Choice E, the incidence of trisomy 21 is approximately 1 per 800 live births. And the risk is increased with advanced maternal age. Daphna, which one is the wrong statement? Okay. I I mean, I hate these questions with these percentages. I find them <laughs> very difficult to recall. Uh, I'll be honest. So <laughs> what I do know is that the majority of patients with trisomy 21 are from non-disjunction. Is it 95%? I'm not sure. But I... Uh, maybe. And then I know that an unbalanced translocation is the next most common. And the, you know, rarely they have a mosaic trisomy 21. But again, I, I really can't recall anything about these percentages. However, they gave me D. Most translocations are familial and both parents should be tested. So that's 
wrong. Uh, most of them are, you know, sporadic mutations. And then E, just to follow through, the incidence of trisodium, I just told you, is one per 800 live births. Um, and the risk is increased with advanced maternal age, which I'm acutely aware of. Um, so the, the, the wrong- Dr. the senior citizen. <laughs> the wrong right answer is is deep, but so I have to assume those percentages are correct. <laughs> My wife is in the same boat. Like I felt like there's no field like OB to make uh, women feel old. Like that's right. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, boy, but uh, yeah, it's. I mean, okay, test taking strategy here. Look for these key terms most mm-hmm. always, right. never. These should very very often they point at an answer that they're purposefully making very overt to try to sway you. I mean, like if they're saying like a statement is incorrect, they'll say, oh, this thing always happens in this mm-hmm. case, right? And and that's usually, uh, that usually is helpful. So talking about trisomy 21, we're not really going to go into the, the pathophysiology you mentioned, but we're going to talk about the inheritance. Mm-hmm. And so the incidence, true, it's one per 800 uh, live births. So that's correct. However, obviously, um, that risk is very useless because it, it changes so rapidly mm-hmm. depending on the age mm-hmm. group of the mother. So really, um, it really that's really a criteria that I think should be included in there. But fine. So E is, uh, is correct. Now, in terms of how is it inherited? So like you said, uh, non-disjunction is, is the most common. And that's 95%. So, so that is actually the right percentage. And you end up having... So what does that mean? That means that instead of the two chromosomes separating, uh, then you have non-disjunction. So one of the cells gets two from one parent and one from the other. So you end up with three copies of chromosome 21. So that's 95%. Then you have 3%, which are basically unbalanced translocation, also known as Robertsonian translocation. Mm-hmm. And that means that a piece of the, uh, the, actually, so if you look at the chromosome 21, you have, oh boy, I'm going to upset all the geneticists down there, but you have, <laughs> you have two arms, right? That are, that contain most of the genetic material. And then, and then the others are pretty rudimentary. So the part that contains most of the genetic material is actually translocated on top on the short arm of chromosome 14, right? So the long arm of chromosome 21 goes on the, instead of the short arm of chromosome 14, which in effect, you have your two copies of chromosome 21, but that third copy is, I guess, hitching a ride on chromosome 14. And that's Robertsonian translocation. And that happens in 3% of cases. Finally, you have mosaicism, which happens in 2% of cases. Now, what's interesting about the choice you picked, which obviously is the right answer, is that those translocations, because you have this long arm of chromosome 21 hitching a ride on chromosome 14, that chromosome can actually be passed on to Mm -hmm. future generations. So there is a possibility of inheriting a Robertsonian translocation from your parents. However, the key to the answer is that unlike what is stated, that's not most translocation. Mm -hmm. That's actually a rare occurrence. And you could potentially test the parents for this, but this is not like the most common way of inheriting Down syndrome and it should not lead to routine testing of parents. So that's why D was the uh, incorrect uh, and the incorrect choice, obviously. Okay. Very helpful. You're welcome. Thank you. 
Okay, question 16. Um, a neonatologist evaluates a male newborn with dysmorphic facial features. After examining the infant, the neonatologist suspects that the infant has Apert syndrome. Of the following, which is likely to be found in this infant? A, coenal atresia, B, craniosynostosis, C, cryptorchidism, D, diaphragmatic hernia, E, polycystic kidney disease. Okay. So mm-hmm. I, um, I'm going to tell you how I remember these things. Mm. Apert syndrome is one of these syndromes that is not often tested, and they usually test some of the same things over and over again. So I try to remember like the most important features. Mm-hmm. And the two things I remember about Apert syndrome is that they do have a... Um, they do have craniosynostosis, meaning their skull is really misshaped, unfortunately. And they do have fusion of the digits with broad thumbs. Mm-hmm. So they have syndactyly. So I remember the craniosynostosis and the, and the broad thumbs and connected fingers, syndactyly. And that's what I remember. I know there's, a, there's many other things, and I don't really have a good mnemonic for it. Um, even though, by the way, I, I'm going to run my, my mnemonic by you, but you'll tell me. My answer is B, craniosynostosis. The way mm-hmm. I remember this is, I think I was looking up, is there a meaning to the word apert, mm-hmm. right? And I think it means open and or something open. And then I'm remembering that apert is the opposite. Everything is closed, meaning the sutures are closing, the, the digits are not open, they're closed. And so that's how I remember it. But I'm not super sure about the meaning of apert in the English. No, that's dictionary. correct. That's Okay, correct. good. It works. <laughs> yeah, it means open. <laughs> Very good. I like that. Um, so you're right. So Apert syndrome um, is uh, craniosynostosis, um, and the other predominant feature, distinguishing feature, is syndactyly. Um, it is autosomal dominant. The babies frequently have hypertelorism, shallow orbits, um, and they can also have mid-face hypoplasia. So those are kind of the facial features. Um the syndrome, this is another thing that's frequently tested, is caused by a mutation in the fibroblast growth factor receptor 2 gene. So that comes up very often um, is what are the syndromes um, related uh, with the fibrogla- fibroblast um, growth uh, factor receptors. Um all right. Well, while we're talking about fibroblast growth factor receptors, um, FGFR3 is another commonly tested one. It's associated with um, hypochondroplasia, achondroplasia, and thanatophoric dysplasia. Uh, the other things, there are a few other syndromes related uh, to craniosynostosis. The other one that is probably most common is Cruzon syndrome. Um, and that's has another name, craniofacial dysostosis, is also autosomal dominant, is also due to a mutation in the FGFR2 gene, um, but in a different mutation than in Apert syndrome. These babies have ocular proptosis, frontal bossing, parrot-beaked-nosed, strabismus. They are less likely to have um, any mental deficiencies as compared to babies with Apert syndrome. They have conductive hearing loss and decreased visual activity. Um, Okay. Um, Okay. Do we have time for one more? Uh, We do. Okay. So we're going to question 17. Uh, Daphna, during the initial examination of a newborn, a cleft lip and palate are identified. Which of the following statements about these abnormalities is least accurate? 
Okay, choice A. Cleft lip and palate are associated with an increased risk of otitis media. Choice B. Phenytoin during pregnancy is unrelated to the development of a cleft lip and palate. So choice C. Smoking during pregnancy is associated with a twofold risk of developing a cleft lip and palate. Choice D, there is an increased risk of dental decay with cleft lip and palate. Choice E, trisomy 13 is associated with a cleft lip and palate. Okay, this one's tough. All right. Um, le- we're looking for things that are least accurate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, increased risk of otitis media. So that's true. Babies with cleft lip and particularly cleft palate are increased risk of otitis media. Phenytoin is unrelated to the development of a cleft lip and palate. I believe it is related to cleft lip and palate. I know that smoking does increase the risk, but I'm not sure if it's twofold. I was shocked by that. I was looking, I was like, twofold? Really? That can't be right. There's an increased risk of dental decay with cleft lip and palate. Maybe. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> and I do know that trisomy 13 is associated with cleft lip and palate. So I, it's for me, it's between B and D, but I'm pretty sure that, I mean, that's one of the, one of the features of, of phenytoin um, exposure is cleft lip and palate. Yeah, so I, I guess B. I got this question wrong because I misread choice B and I read as phenytoin during pregnancy is related and not unrelated. Uh, and then I looked back uh-huh. and I was like, but, and I'm like, Darn it. unrelated. <laughs> yeah, because the other choices are tough. And and then I agree with you. I think there's sometimes where you're like, you know what? Like if I if I get this question wrong, dying on the hill of maybe it's a twofold risk increase and I'm like, That's fine, right. I will I will gladly fall on my sword on this one. <laughs> so yeah, the presence of a cleft lip and palate is associated with many genetic disorders, and they include DeGeorge, Meckel-Gruber syndrome, Pierre-Robin sequence, Smith-Lipney-Opitz syndrome, and trisomy 13. Clefts can also occur as a teratogenic effect of cigarette smoking during pregnancy, a twofold increase, as well as phenobarbital and phenytoin. The phenytoin actually increases the risk of cleft lip and palate by 10. And then you have retinoic intrauterine exposure, which are the Rakuten sort of uh, acne treatment. Uh, individuals with a cleft lip and palate have a high risk of otitis media and dental decay. Very good. Okay. All right, Daphna, is that um, all we have time for today? That's it. See you tomorrow. Right. See you tomorrow, Daphna. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICU Podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.